Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Up until now, we've focused our attention on the text of Scripture. We took five episodes looking at the Hebrew Bible, including its sources, transmission, and how textual scholars go about deciding the initial text. Then for the last seven episodes, we did the same for the New Testament, examining the surviving source material and looking at the work of textual criticism. Now we are in a good position to shift gears and turn to the whole world of translation. As it turns out, English Bible translators divide into two broad styles or theories of translation, formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. In this episode, we'll explore these two translation philosophies and the trade-offs each makes in order to produce English Bibles. Here now is episode 342, part 13 of our Bible class, Bible Translation Philosophies. Now, translation is putting a source language into a receptor or target language, and since no two languages line up exactly, there's always a whole range of decisions that translators have to make in order to make that transition. So in order to illustrate this, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. In the Greek it reads, Ischar theos iske mesitis theu ke anthropon anthropos Christos Jesus, which as an exact one-for-one equivalence would read, one for God, one and mediator of God and men, man, Christ Jesus. But when you rework it into an actual English translation, we read, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. So in order to do that, and this is just my own translation, you're not going to necessarily find this anywhere, but it's a pretty simple verse, so you probably find a number that agree with it. We had to make five, no less than five changes to the literal reading in order to make an intelligible translation in the English language. And by intelligible, I mean that it follows the rules of English grammar. So the first thing we had to do is we took the, the little word har, which is the word for four, and we moved it one word back. So the literal reads, one for God. But then the Finnish translation reads, for there is one God. So you notice that word for, I moved it from the second word in the original back to the first word. And that's just because that's how this word works in Greek. It's a, called a post-positive. It always takes second position. In, in translation, you always move it back one word. It's just something we don't have in English, but we have it in Greek. And that's not the only word that does that. So the second change is I inserted there is twice. We can see one at the beginning and then one in the middle there. For there is one God and there is one mediator. Otherwise it would read for one God and one mediator. You know, which is just like not English anymore. Uh, the third change I made is I added the definite article before man Christ Jesus. So it says the man Christ Jesus. And the fourth change is I changed men which is the actual equivalent of anthropon, to mankind. And I did that because this is not referring to males alone, but to all humans. Christ mediates for women 
and for men. So I use the, the inclusive term mankind instead of the exclusive term men. In Greek, anthropon can mean mixed gender groups or all male groups, either one. And then last of all, I changed the word of to between. So, and this, this would take a little bit of uh, explanation that would probably take us too far afield, but the simple explanation is that this is a, a function of Greek grammar. It's something called the genitive case, and this is one of the ways the genitive can express itself as between instead of just of. So the translation, as I think I showed at least a little bit here, is part science and part art, because you can do it different ways, and that's one of the reasons why we have so many different English translations is that this translator and that translator have a different approach to how they want to render something and it's there's nothing wrong with that you know it's it's nice to see different flavors and different emphases uh, but it won't do just to replace words with equivalents that's not an actual translation you have to add in extra words sometimes you have to take words out that are there in the original that you don't want to render in the English and you have to reorder a lot and that happens with any kind of translation work that anybody does. It's not distinctive to Bible translation. So translators for the Bible have employed two main strategies in order to do their work. One is called formal equivalence and then the other dynamic equivalence. And I want to explain to you and show you how these two different methodologies play out because this is actually very important for us going forward as we start to get into the whole arena of English translations. Uh, let's look at formal equivalence first. Notice the word formal. It's the idea that they're representing the form of the original into the receptor language. Uh, sometimes this is also called a word-for-word -word approach. So Bible translation is all about trade-offs. Do you want the translation to put you in touch with what's beneath the surface or are you more concerned about readability? being able to comprehend the translation without any effort. That's a trade-off that you have to make. The formal equivalence uh, philosophy of translation is always going to go for transparency to the original text over readability and other concerns as far as the reader goes. Um, and that means that the formal equivalence translations are a little less natural, but they're closer to the original languages. So let's look at this quote by Gordon Fee that I think nicely summarizes how this plays out. He writes, if the Greek or Hebrew text uses an infinitive, the English translation will use an infinitive. When the Greek or Hebrew has a prepositional phrase, so will the English. The goal of this translational theory is formal correspondence as much as possible. Some formal equivalence translators even signal when they add in extra words using italics to indicate words added in, including the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the Revised English Version. The end result of formal equivalence is that it empowers readers to interpret Scripture for themselves. Here is how Ron Rhodes put it. Formal equivalence translations can also be trusted not to mix too much commentary in with the text derived from the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. To clarify, while all translation entails some interpretation, 
Formal equivalence translations keep it to a minimum in intermingling interpretive additives into the text. I think that's just great how he says it. Interpretive additives. It reminds me of additives in food. Uh, as one scholar put it, an essentially literal translation operates on the premise that a translator is a steward of what someone else has written, not an editor and exegete who needs to explain or correct what someone else has written. So that's a key distinction here. The formal equivalence people look at themselves as stewards, not as editors or exegetes. So they're not trying to explain anything. They're not trying to interpret it. Now every, as my Hebrew teacher loves to say, every translation is a commentary. Okay, granted, there's always going to be interpretive decisions that translators have to make. I understand that. But the formal equivalence style of translation is always going to lean towards preserving whatever was there in the original as far as the grammar, as far as as much as possible consistency in language. So if you, if you render one word by another word, you want to keep that consistency going through so that people know what's beneath the surface. The end result is that readers interpret scripture for themselves. Now, if I was to use an analogy, I'd say the formal equivalence translation is more like raw ingredients from a grocery store, and the functional equivalence is more like going to a restaurant where the meal is already prepared for you. You can get this same exact food, but one, you have to prepare yourself, and that takes work, takes effort, and the other one, someone else prepares it for you. So if the Hebrew or the Greek contains an ambiguity, and this is something that we're going to come to over and over again later on, if the Hebrew or the Greek contains an ambiguity, a phrase that can be understood in different ways, two or more different ways, the formal equivalence translation is going to try its best to preserve that ambiguity in its English translation so that you, as the reader, are basically burdened or empowered, depends on how you want to look at it, to figure out which way you should read this particular phrase or verse or whatever. So this is the advantage of the formal equivalence is the prioritization of accuracy and form and transparency and really empowering readers to interpret the Bible for themselves rather than having the translator interpret more of it for you. Now typically a lot of formal equivalence translations use the word standard in their name. So for example you have the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, the New Revised Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the American Standard Version. And I think this standard really comes down to uh, this version sees itself as a descendant of the King James Version and its predecessors, that it, it, fi it finds itself as a revision along the line there. Uh, but as it turns out, because the King James was a formal equivalence translation, almost all or maybe all standard versions are also formal equivalents. So that's kind of just a, a quick way to, for you to, to see if your version is a formal equivalence. If it has standard in the name, it probably is. Um, then you have dynamic equivalents. All right, shifting gears here to the other side. In a dynamic equivalence translation, the translator prioritizes sense and flow in English over the form of the original languages. So you get the phrase thought for thought. So formal equivalence is word for word, dynamic is thought for thought. Renowned translator Eugene Nita coined the term, and this is what he said. 
Dynamic equivalence is therefore to be defined in terms of the degree to which the receptors of the message and the receptor language respond to it in substantially the same manner as the receptors in the source language. This response can never be identical for the cultural and historical settings are too different, but there should be a high degree of equivalence of response or the translation will have failed to accomplish its purpose. A translation of the Bible must not only provide information which people can understand, but must present the message in such a way that people can feel its relevance, the expressive element in communication, and can then respond to it in action, the imperative function. So we see here with this description that the functional equivalence goal is that when the reader encounters the scripture, they encounter it in a parallel, maybe we could say parallel way, to the way the original readers would have responded who already spoke that language. Uh, here's, a, here's another quote by Ron Rhodes who describes this process a little bit more. Dynamic equivalence translations, he says, generally use shorter words, shorter sentences, and shorter paragraphs. They use easy vocabulary, and use simple substitutes for theological and cultural terminology. They often convert culturally dependent figures of speech into easy, direct statements. They seek to avoid ambiguity as well as biblical jargon in favor of a natural English style. Translators concentrate on transferring meaning rather than mere words from one language to another. The result is a more natural reading experience with fewer ambiguities. So let's compare these two together. On the one side, we've got formal equivalence, which has correspondence, whereas on the other side, you have dynamic equivalence with function. It's, it's preserving the function of the original, not the form of the original. The formal has word for word, the dynamic has thought for thought. The formal has a focus on literal, whereas the dynamic focuses on readable. The formal focuses on transparency to the originals, whereas the dynamic wants to replicate the experience of the originals. The formal transfers interpretation to the reader, whereas the dynamic has the interpretation built in. The formal focuses on accuracy, whereas the dynamic focuses on ease of understanding. My question to you is, is the trade-off worth it? And in which direction is the trade-off worth it? Well, to be honest, it just depends on who it is we're talking about. Who is the reader? What is the reader's situation? For example, if the Bible seems utterly foreign and obscure to someone, is that person going to be less likely to read it? What's more important? A perfectly accurate text that's never read? Or a text that maybe has some interpretation in it, but that somebody cherishes and reads daily? Right? I mean, these are, these are hard questions to answer. For example, the dynamic equivalence uh, translations tend to fight frustration. I don't understand what this means. No, you, you are going to understand what it means. Uh, it's going to fight boredom because a lot of times they're going to put Bible phrases in fresh and exciting new ways. But then the question is, well, what about accuracy? What about consistency with the originals? And that's on the formal side. And a lot depends on the audience. I mean, is this a child reading the Bible? Because if it's a child reading the Bible, I bet you they don't know what the word sanctification means and almost all your formal equivalence versions are going to use terms like sanctification. Why? Because that's what the Greek used in the New Testament verses I have in mind. 
Uh, what about people who have never been to church, who have not been exposed to Christianity? Are they going to understand a word like atonement or propitiation? What about those who have English as a second language and they're reading the Bible in English? Their vocabulary is limited to a, a couple of thousand words. In those situations, a dynamic equivalence is going to be a lot more enjoyable for somebody than having to whip out the dictionary every time they encounter a foreign word in a formal equivalence translation. So th there are a series of trade-offs. We're going to be getting much more into this. I'm not interested in taking a side right here, right now, but I want you to see the difference. Let's look at another example. This is Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and it reads in the Hebrew, Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishfech ki betselem Elohim asa et ha'adam. I don't know if you heard that while I'm reading, but there's a lot of Dom and Adam going on in the original. The literal translation of this, this is just my own literal, hyper-literal translation, would read for this Genesis 9-6 verse that I bet you already know. Pouring out the blood of the man, by man his blood will pour out, because in the image of God he made the man. Kind of sounds like Yoda from Star Wars, huh? Uh, then you have the NASB which is a formal equivalence translation, which reads, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And the New Living Translation, the NLT, is a dynamic equivalence translation, which reads, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. So my literal translation preserves the word order, of the original Hebrew, which is why it's not proper English. Like that does, that's not a grammatically correct English sentence that I just read to you, <laughs> if you didn't know. But I lost the pun. There's a huge pun between the word for human being and the word for blood that's going on in the Hebrew. Just once again, it says shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo. Like that, that's like poetry. That's like fireworks going off to the Hebrew ear that no translation, at least not either of the two I quoted here, is able to replicate. Now maybe Everett Fox or Robert Alter in their Hebrew translations were able to figure out some way to uh, get the word human being to sound like the word blood. <laughs> maybe they did, I don't know, I didn't check, but you know, this is the sort of thing that just always gets lost in translation. It's a, a, a flavor of the language that just doesn't communicate unless you're reading the original. And as we'll come to the end of this class, I'm going to make a, a big appeal to you that why are you depending on a translation anyhow? Why not just learn the original languages? I mean, if you have the time, if you have the mental ability, why not do it? We'll come back to that later. Let me, let me continue. <laughs> Sadly, this sort of flavor uh, is routinely filtered out in translation, but we do see a lot preserved in the NASB, for example. The NASB kind of goes out of its way to always use the same word in English, like for example, man, for the same word in Hebrew, Adam. It's like where we get the name Adam from as well. Anyhow, so the NASB is sensitive to the poetic form, which we saw in how it laid out the verse using separate lines, whereas the NLT just ignored the fact that this was a poetic statement and just rendered it into plain everyday English. Now, let's do a little comparison here on the clunky English of the NASB. 
First up, the NASB translation for part of this verse was, quote, by man his blood shall be shed, end quote. That's not a very good sentence in English. This would be a little bit better. His blood shall be shed by man. You see what I did there? I took the by man and I put it at the end. Then, I think even better to use an active voice instead of a passive voice, a man shall shed his blood. Rather than saying his blood shall be shed by man, a man shall shed his blood. That's what we're actually saying here. Um, then the NLT does that person's life will also be taken by human hands. So the NLT, what it does is it, it substitutes, instead of the word blood, which we see in all these other renderings, it uses the term person's life. And instead of his, it says that person's life. We're going to come back to gender in just a little while here, but in a couple of episodes. But this is an important difference. And then also it's gotten rid of man over here and it says human hands. So that's another difference as well. So the NASB prioritized transparency to the original over readability. The NASB on this verse is clunky English. There's no question about it. It is awkward English. Uh, the NLT reworks the order of the words and made a, a couple of additional changes to make sure that it flowed and it would be instantly understandable by somebody who didn't have a Bible college degree, didn't have years of experience going to church and listening to sermons, didn't have an education as a child in Sunday school. Um, so the NLT is not going to make any of those assumptions. They're just going to be like, all right, look, we know that in Hebrew, the word blood, dom, that it stands in for the word life. So we're just going to translate it life rather than blood because your average English speaker is not going to already know that blood is standing in for life. It's, it's a, a figure of speech for life. Now the upside to that is you understand it right away. The downside of it is that the NLT is now separating you from the original languages and, and you're missing out on the fact that for the Hebrew mindset, the life is in the blood. So, and I'm not sure what they do for that verse, uh, but th this is a, a concept that's very much like interwoven into how they speak and how the language works. So this text nicely, I think, illustrates the priorities of Bible translations. Now, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen one of those graphics of a bunch of Bible translations laid out and they're more literal or on one side and the more paraphrasing ones are on the other? This is something that I'm very interested in for this class, obviously, and I did a lot of looking around the internet and bookstores and stuff, and you see so many of these different graphics, and I tell you what, they just drive me crazy because, first of all, these charts are designed by Bible sellers. These are marketing tools to get you to buy a particular Bible. Uh, so I have two examples here for you on the screen. On the top, the sellers are trying to get you to buy an NIV. How are they doing that? Well, what they're doing is they're putting uh, these radical left word-for-word -word versions on the, on the far left, and they're putting these radical paraphrases on the far right, and then in, in this sort of middle range, you see the NIV right in the middle of the, of the page. They know you're not going to buy, if you're, unless you're a Catholic, you're not going to buy the NJB or the NAB. Those are both Catholic Bibles. Uh, they know if you're not a mainliner, you're not going to buy the NRSV. So what are they pushing here? This is the NIV, TNIV uh, marketing materials. <laughs> and uh, 
Then on the bottom, I have, uh, just to be fair, I have another diagram here with the more literal on the left side and then the less literal on the right side. What version is this pushing? It's pushing the ESV. The ESV, it's, uh, it highlights it and says, the ESV is recommended for most people. It is mostly literal and easy to understand as compared to the NASB, which is way too woodenly literal in this graphic here. And then uh, the message it puts on the far right and says the message is a paraphrase, not a translation. It is not recommended for Bible study. Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem with bashing the, the message for being a paraphrase or ridiculing uh, the King James or the NASB or the ESV for being literal. The problem is that what we're, we're not really engaging with the reasons behind these things, why these things are the way they are, and we're not taking these Bible translations on their own terms. Uh, for example, the message very clearly says in its own literature, it's not a paraphrase. It's a functional equivalence translation. I would say it's more liberal in the sense of reworking than a lot of translations are comfortable with, but it is still following those same exact principles. And so it is with the NASB or if you want to get really literal, the Young's literal translation, super, super wooden literal translate, but it's, it's following the rules of formal equivalence. It's just following them more closely, right? And so you do have a range. I'm not disputing that there's a range. I'm disputing that these different diagrams don't have an agenda. I think they do have an agenda, and I think you, as an informed Bible purchaser and Bible reader, you need to be aware that these are marketing materials. These are not data-driven. They're anecdotal. And so in searching around, I did find something a little bit better. A gentleman by the name of scholar named Andy Wu used computer analysis to determine literalness and readability. And uh, full disclosure, Wu's research was probably, as far as I could tell, funded by the people behind the CSB, that's the um, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, and his report proudly touted their Bible at the end of it. But he does use... Uh, quantitative analysis to arrive at his conclusions and he does some really helpful analysis that's at least data driven okay so having said that little bit of a caveat there let's see what his work produced here is a quote from Andy Wu in his little essay a quantitative evaluation of the Christian Standard Bible from 2017 he writes the evaluation is quantitative in that each translation is linguistically analyzed and statistically measured by a computerized procedure to produce numerical scores for each aspect of the text. This avoids some of the problems associated with manual evaluation, like those other graphics that we see in Christian bookstores. Namely, they're subjective, qualitative, time-consuming, and consequently anecdotal and incomplete. So instead, what Wu is saying is like, we need to use the computer to analyze the text of these different versions to see how they map to the original languages, how literal are they, and how readable they are. And that's really the two things that I'm interested in, and I think you probably are as well. So the literalness score ends up being somewhere around 70%. Uh, it looks like about 68% for the ESV. And it's interesting here because in the previous charts, uh, we saw that the NASB was touted as more literal than the ESV, but actually from the quantitative analysis, the ESV is more literal than anything else that they tested. The NASB, the King James, New King James, the ESV is more literal than all of them. 
but it's interesting too because your ESV, your NASB, your King James Version, your New King James Version, and your Christian Standard Bible are all about the same score. It's all about 65 to 69%, somewhere in this range here, uh, literal. So it's not really much difference. Then you have the NRSV, which is still over 60%, looks like 61%, and then it drops down considerably as you get to the NET, the NIV, and then the lowest score for literalness is going to be the NLT with 40%. Then there's the flip side, the readability score. Now the NLT outperforms everyone else because it has 70% readability, which is even better than the NIV, which looks like about 67%. And then that's just a hair above the CSB at 66%. And right down the line, uh, you can see the, the ESV has moved over a little bit because the NASB, New King James, and then last of all, the King James, which has terrible readability, probably because it's 500 years old and it's written in Old English, and that score comes in below 50% readability. So this, this is kind of a real helpful illustration to show the inverse relationship between literalness and readability. The more faithful you are to literalness, the more difficult it is to read. The more faithful you are to readability, the more you move away from the literal reading of the text. So these are, you know, just the way translations are. Like I said, a series of trade-offs, and there are extremes on both ends. So, for example, the most literal, if you want to just look at the formal equivalent side, probably the, the least literal in the formal equivalent side is the Christian Standard Bible uh, of 2017. And then... Um, the most literal, at least that I can think of, is Young's literal translation of 1898, where uh, it was like just super word for word. You could say an interlinear is more literal than Young's because the interlinear doesn't even translate. It just puts the English equivalent underneath the Hebrew Greek word. Uh, but I don't think that's really a translation. Uh, and to be honest, I can't even really recommend to you Young's literal translation because 1898, my goodness, like the Dead Sea Scrolls had not been discovered yet. The Oxyrhynchus papyri had not been discovered. The Chester Beatty papyri, the Martin Bodmer papyri. I mean, so many of the different discoveries that we had in the 20th century weren't made, obviously, in the year 1898. So let's say you're looking at Young's literal translation and you notice a difference between your translation and Young's. So what do you do? You say, oh, is this a translation issue or is it a manuscript issue? Look, if you don't know the original languages, I don't know how you're going to solve that, that kind of a question. I mean, maybe you could look it up in the NET Bible or in uh, Philip Comfort's book to see if there's a manuscript difference there. So you could probably figure it out. But it, it's not necessarily obvious that just because there's a difference, oh, it's a translation error. It could be a manuscript difference because that is a, a version that's using different manuscripts. And then on the uh, other extreme, so that's on the formal equivalent side, on the dynamic equivalent side, the most extreme versions of that that are very loose with the text or really prioritize reader experience over everything else would be like a Hawaiian Pigeon Bible or the Cotton Patch Bible. And we'll look at that in a later episode anyhow, where let's say for example, in the Cotton Patch Bible, which was translated in the 60s in Georgia, they replaced Jerusalem with Atlanta. Because from the perspective of the people who were gonna be reading that Bible, their Jerusalem was Atlanta, Georgia. 
<laughs> How, do you feel comfortable with that? So that's kind of a, a radical decision that he made there. We'll come back to that next time. But these recent trends have been more towards finding a central position. And uh, so the NRSV famously said, as literal as possible, as free as necessary. So the NRSV tends to float more towards the middle, even though it is a formal equivalence translation. Um, and then the CSB coined the term optimal equivalence, which again, you have to be careful with these terms because these are marketing strategies to get you to buy these, these Bibles. Uh, but you know, I think it does convey fairly well the, the sense that they're going for. They're, they're trying to be as accurate as possible, as preserving of ambiguities as possible, but not being as wooden and awkward to read as your more traditional literal versions are. Well, that's, that's enough today. Next time we'll look at a wide range of important decisions that translators make at the outset before they even begin their work in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. What'd you think? Come on to restitutio.org and leave your question or comment on episode 342, Bible Translation Philosophies, and I would love to hear from you. Speaking of which, we recently received in a couple of comments I wanted to read out from our last episode, 341, on two uncorrected corruptions. That's where we talked about the long ending on Mark and the first part of John 8 with the adulterous woman. Paul Peterson says, I've really enjoyed listening to and learning from this series on how we got the Bible. Because you haven't been afraid to dive into some of the mundane details, the reward for me has been much greater. So many fascinating aspects. I share your sentiments about the decision that most publishers have made regarding including textual corruptions in their translations. I'm not sure when a decision like that goes from being timid to being downright dishonest. Either way, it's unfortunate and gives the enemy a foothold. I'm looking forward to seeing what improvements any future English translations may make. Well, thanks for that comment, Paul. I think this is really the biggest thing that's come out of the research I've done on how we got the Bible, is a sort of optimism about the future, a uh, whatever the opposite of conservatism is, where instead of thinking that we need to conserve one translation done in the 90s or the early 2000s or 1600s for that matter, and say, oh, no, we, we have to stick to this, rather to instead adopt the posture that says scholarship is getting closer to the original in the text of Scripture, translation philosophy is improving over time, and so we have good reason to be optimistic about future translations of the Bible more accurately communicating what the original authors wrote. So, uh, so I think that's a real important benefit to get out of this class. And uh, as far as diving into the mundane details, I wasn't really sure how some of my manuscript lectures would go over uh, because it's, it's not the kind of material that a lot of people are familiar with or accustomed to dealing with, but I think the payoff is, in fact, worth it when you get to trying to read these footnotes and apparatuses, and you really just are dead in the water if you are unable to decipher the little symbols and understand what stands behind them. So, um, yeah, I don't regret doing that, although uh, I fear we may have lost some some regular listeners along the way at that point, but uh, be assured, we have some exciting material coming up with respect to 
a couple of important issues that I think most of our listeners will be very interested in. So uh, stay tuned for that. Another commenter, Kerr, writes, Lexham English Bible omits adulteress and includes the longer ending of Mark only as an addendum. P.S. Thank you so much for your work. Well, Kerr, thanks so much for pointing that out. Uh, Props to the Logos Bible software people. Uh, I don't know if this was uh, Michael Heiser's work or one of the other scholars on site there who puts out the Lexham English Bible, Uh, but props to you guys for doing right by the text and not including verses that are not there. I haven't been able to find a Lexham English Bible in print. It seems like you have to buy their software in order to access it, or at least maybe get the freebie version. Uh, But it would be nice if they uh, did have a print one as well. I I noticed that there was a Septuagint for, for the LEB, but not a complete English translation from the Hebrew and the Greek for the Old and New Testaments for in print. So maybe that's their strategy to market their software. I can't fault them for that. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.